Boyfriend Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. And this week on the show, Serena Slam comes to an end while reforms at FIFA and football season are just beginning. Our feature this week, sports and gambling. Currently, betting on sports is illegal in the U.S., but for a handful of states. Does this protect the integrity of sports, or is it completely arbitrary in the age of fantasy? Then, a girl's guide to fantasy football. All right, so Bryn, what is going on with FIFA? Yeah, so this week FIFA unveiled an eight-step plan for reform stemming from all of the craziness that we've discussed on previous (laughs) episodes. So Domenico Scala is the independent chairman of FIFA's Audit and Compliance Committee, and this week he proposed some reforms that, if enacted, would reduce the power of the executive committee of FIFA which is absolutely necessary, (laughs) Um, would improve transparency pretty much across the board. Um, It would put term limits on the executive committee, and it would revise the World Cup bidding procedures, among a number of other reforms. So pretty like wide-sweeping reforms, which are desperately needed for FIFA. Some of them can be adopted directly by the executive committee, which will meet in Zurich in two weeks. But other ones have to wait until the entire FIFA Congress is together and representatives from 209 member nations will vote on those. So the next time that that could happen is February. But Um, these these proposals seem like they're actually pretty hard-hitting and addressing what the major issues were. They definitely are, and I think it's on the right track, but... The problem is that they have to be approved, and so we'll see. I mean, it's a lot a lot of things aimed to reduce the power of the executive committee, and there are some of the people voting on it, so we'll see. <laughs> see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, last episode, we talked about Serena Slam, which, of course, is Serena Williams's historic run to win four major tennis titles in one calendar year. And unfortunately for her, it all came to an end in the semifinal match against Roberta Vinci, who is an unranked veteran player who was playing in her first Grand Slam semifinal. To get to that point, Serena had to beat her sister Venus in the quarterfinals. And I thought this was a really intense and emotional match to watch, even more so than usual when they play each other because Serena was going for history and Venus was exceeding people's expectations by getting to that point after. And didn't her... didn't I read that that might have been the last time that they play at a major? That might be true. I mean, Venus is uh, 35 already, and she has an autoimmune disorder, which makes exhaustion uh, more of an issue for her. And that's why a lot of people were sort of surprised that she had made it that far in the tournament. So it could happen that that is their last match. They're so impressive. I know. <laughs> but not impressive enough because the trophy ultimately went to Flavia Panetta, who is a 33-year-old Italian. And promptly after winning, she immediately announced her retirement from the sport. <laughs> oh, my God. So she's going to finish out the season, but then that will be it. Um, but overall, Might I'd well say... well go out on a high note. Yeah, no. for real. Um, overall, though, I'd say that this was a really good moment for tennis as both the finalists and Serena were all in their 30s. And I think that that really speaks to the depth of of the field. Yeah, it's pretty awesome that athletes can sustain that level of dominance until your 30s. (laughs) Seriously. But um, I guess switching to talking about 18-year-olds, 
Bryn, <laughs> college football is coming back, is back. What's going on? Yes. It is my favorite time of the year, and while it's not technically fall here in Malawi, it is football season. So, well, this year, for me, it means burning through a ton of data to live stream radio feeds. I'm willing to do this um, because my team actually has a competent coach this year in the hiring of Jim Harbaugh, and I'm pretty pumped about that. But... To start off, um, NCAA football started last week, and while it's very early in the season and too soon to tell very much, there have been some interesting things going on so far. First of all, Ohio State, the defending national champions, are ranked number one at the beginning of the season, and much as I hate to admit it, um, (laughs) they actually look completely dominant. They've moved their former starting quarterback, Braxton Miller, to wide receiver. And in the first game, he pulled this ridiculous spin move that was just like unreal. And you would never have guessed that he wasn't made to be a wide receiver. It was so unusual, quarterback to a wide receiver. Ohio State just has like really ridiculous depth at quarterback. Well, I think that Um, that also speaks to, I think so many times we try to equate the NCAA with NFL because it's so similarly like publicized and it's such a big deal and all of this stuff. But I think that this is a really good example of how college sports is still amateurs playing and that they can like switch from quarterback to wide receiver. No problem. (laughs) Recruiting is so different, you know, for the NCAA versus how you get a roster together for the NFL. So Ohio State ended up with three ridiculously good prospects at quarterback because of recruiting and trying to like lure guys in from high school. Great. It's great for crazy. them. Great for them. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing that happened this past weekend was that number six ranked Auburn almost lost to Jacksonville State, who is not even in the FBS conference. They're like a second tier team so this would have been the second time in history that an fcs team beat a top 10 ranked fbs team um <laughs> and jacksonville state was winning up until the last 40 seconds of the game when auburn uh had a tying touchdown to push it to overtime so Auburn narrowly, narrowly escaped this one. So enough about college kids. Maeve, why don't you tell us what's going on over on the NFL front? Yeah, so really the entire NFL offseason has been dominated by speculation surrounding Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. And as you and many of our listeners may be aware, Brady and the Patriots were accused of deflating footballs in the AFC Championship game. Which, the never-ending uh, saga. Exactly. So the NFL and Roger Goodell originally suspended Brady for four games. Then they upheld that suspension upon appeal. Brady then sued the NFL in court, claiming that the punishment violated his players' union agreement. And the judge in that case, uh, Richard Berman, agreed with him, saying that the NFL failed to give Brady proper notice he could be suspended. They didn't provide him with the opportunity to question one of the league's investigators, and they denied him equal access to investigative files. 
But if you have some extra time, I really highly suggest that you go and read reports from the court hearings because (laughs) Judge Berman is just not having it. He's so over the NFL and you can almost just hear him want to scream like, are we really spending taxpayer dollars on this right now? (laughs) So he's a hero. I mean, I felt like that was the whole thing coming out of it was just like, Roger Goodell, why are you doing this? You're overstepping your boundaries like... And everyone is over you. Well, so there was also speculation about why Goodell was doing this. And many people believe that Deflategate was really payback for Spygate, in which the Patriots (laughs) are accused of illegally taping other team signals and interfering with their radio headsets and going so far as to steal play sheets from locker rooms. And it's rumored that the other NFL team owners were upset with Goodell because he basically favored Patriots owner Robert Kraft in in basically not punishing the Patriots for any of this. But then Sports Illustrated publishes extensive piece, which just goes to town on the Patriots and released new details and quotes. And um, it's really something to read. We'll post it online, but it's quite the damnation of the Patriots. And because we can't go one week without a Patriots scandal, this past week when they played the Steelers, the Steelers accused the Patriots of tampering with their headsets. But suffice it to say, like, it doesn't look good. It doesn't make anybody trust the Patriots. On the other hand, the Patriots now have a major chip on their shoulder, and they still won. They beat the Steelers 28-21. to And Brady was incredible, as usual. Yes, (laughs) as was Gronk. So I think next we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about sports and gambling. All right, so welcome back. Um, Today, we're going to talk about sports and gambling and how confusing and conflicted our culture is with gambling. So generally in the U.S., I think we have a pretty interesting relationship with gambling. It's extremely popular and addicting where it's available, but many states don't have casinos and don't allow gambling of any kind except for the lottery, basically. In terms of sports and gambling, this all goes back to 1961, um, when then U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy introduced what's called the Wire Act, which was intended to target organized crime and to target the mob's most profitable racket, which just happened to be bookkeeping on horse racing and sports gambling. So what the Wire Act did was prohibit gambling on the net on the nation's wire communication system at the time. So that's gambling over the phone and telegraph. And what's interesting is that the keywords in the act are wire communication. And that's made this this law come up time and time again as it gets more and more outdated. And it's been used to argue that no form of internet gambling could ever be legalized in the U.S., even at the state level. Yeah, so before we get to the internet, we still need to go back a little bit in time to fully understand all the contours of sports gambling. Because in the 1970s and 80s, Delaware, Oregon, and Montana joined Nevada as the only states that allowed sports gambling. And at the time, this was legal within the context. Uh, This made especially the NFL kind of nervous that sports gambling would gain momentum nationwide. 
So, in the 1990s, a bill called the Sports Service Mark Protection Act was introduced, and this would have prevented states from using trademarks and logos from professional teams in their lotteries and their sweepstakes and their other gambling schemes on the basis that it would exploit the team's ownership of their sports mark. So, then NFL Commissioner, commissioner Paul Tagliabue, Tag, Tagliabue, 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 Um, Anyway, he argued that it violated the intellectual property rights of the NFL to be associated with state-sponsored betting. Um, But Congress ultimately never passed this bill. But it wasn't too long before Bill Bradley, who is a former NBA star and senator from New Jersey, sponsored a different bill against sports gambling And this time it was on the basis of the damaging nature to the integrity of the game. Tagliabue testified again. He got rid of his intellectual property argument and we and he went more with an argument of like this is important to the future of America and to our children. And it was all about integrity. And the whole scheme worked because the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act was passed in 1992 and it confined legal sports betting to Nevada, Delaware, Oregon and Montana, where it already existed. And Tagliabue said upon its passing, quote, we do not want our games to be used as bait to sell gambling. We have to make it clear to the athletes, the fans and the public. Gambling is not a part of sport, period. Which is fascinating because as far back as anyone can remember, gambling has been part of sport, you know? (laughs) It's like, it's always been there, legal or not. So actually, let's take a look at some of the most famous or infamous um, scandals in sports and gambling in the history. Um, Maybe maybe some examples of why sports and morality got so tied up with one another. Yeah, um, and there's good reason. Um, (laughs) So let's start with um, what's called the Black Sox scandal. And that happened in 1919. The Chicago White Sox were widely regarded as the best team in baseball, heading into the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. But eight players on the White Sox then conspired and agreed to take bribes totaling $100,000 to throw the World Series. Because of the popularity of baseball at the time, the 1919 World Series was a nine-game series. So entering game eight, the five games that the White Sox had lost were thrown with you know, varying degrees of obviousness. <laughs> um, but things got really serious and the gamblers were starting to get nervous that the eight players who had agreed to throw the series weren't going to follow through. Um, so before game eight, the pitcher that was set to pitch from the White Sox was visited by a hitman who threatened to kill his wife if the outcome of the game wasn't clear after the first inning. Oh, my gosh. So this pitcher, Lefty Williams, gave up three runs immediately, and the Reds went on to win that game 10-5. to So after an investigation in which two of the players outright confessed, all eight were permanently banned from baseball, and the judge who was investigating the, the fix of the World Series went on to be appointed as the first ever commissioner of baseball. 
Which is kind of cool. Like, I mean, it took a huge scandal, but then they're like, okay, maybe we need some regulation. Okay, Here's friend, a commissioner. This all happened in 1919. Like, that is no longer a part of our collective memory. Like, there, something more recent also happened in baseball, right? I mean, many things have. But I think the most famous one recently is Pete Rose. He's an all-time major league leader in hits. Games played at bats, singles, and outs, still to this day. He won three World Series rings, three batting titles, one MVP award, two Golden Gloves, a Rookie of the Year award, like every, everything. basically everything you can win. And in August 1989, three years after he had retired as an active player, he agreed to permanent ineligibility from baseball because he there were so many accusations that he had gambled on the baseball games that he had uh, been managing the Cincinnati Reds for. So Cincinnati Reds again. Again? Uh, what is know. it with Cincinnati? <laughs> I mean, they weren't the ones cheating in the White Sox scandal, but they were involved. <laughs> So in 1991, the Baseball Hall of Fame voted to ban him from induction into the Hall of Fame. Then this came, this all came back around in June 2015, just a couple of months ago, where an ESPN report concluded an investigation and determined that Rose not only bet against his team, but he also was gambling while he was still a player from 1984 <laughs> to 1986. So, so really baseball ruined sports gambling for every other sport. <laughs> I think that's what has given people so much uneasiness about gambling is that it can so quickly be corrupted and the game can be compromised. Well, one man who is not afraid of the uh, corruption element of sports is apparently (laughs) Governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. In 2011, uh, New Jersey voters passed a referendum that legalized sports betting, and Christie signed this bill into law, but it was quickly brought down by the courts in favor of the sports league, saying that it violated the professional and amateur sports law. Then in 2014, New Jersey voters passed a different version of the referendum, which sidestepped the state's role by saying that only private businesses and not the state itself would run the betting. So this was essentially a loophole in the federal law. And once again, it was opposed by the professional leagues and the courts. This has now carried on just until recently this summer when Christie's office uh, now is asking for a rehearing among the full 23-judge panel of the Third Circuit. And there's this really great quote from Brian Murray, who's a Christie spokesperson, and he says, The people of New Jersey have spoken on this issue, and we will continue to fight to protect the will of our voters from the fickle and unfair application of outdated and unconstitutional federal law. Oh, my God. I he makes thought, it sound like it's the end of the world. I know. I wish I had, like, an old man Jersey accent to go along with that quote. <laughs> <laughs> to me, this just seems like such a siloed approach to this. It doesn't seem like the kind of fix that could be rolled out nationwide. And I feel like our our country's getting to the point where we need, like, a widespread solution. And this just doesn't – to me, it doesn't seem like that would be – a positive approach to have every state have a private system running gambling. Yeah, so a lot of people in this debate cite Britain as a really good counterexample of a nationwide 
uh, state-run gambling enterprise. So in Britain, sports gambling is really ubiquitous. You can bet at storefronts, at kiosks, you can bet from your phone. Um, I guess that you can even bet like with your remote control while you're watching the game. It's like built into your television package or something. <laughs> Betting houses will also advertise during games with updated live odds. So they're just, it's totally folded in with the game itself. One theory as to why the U.S. and Britain diverge so much on this is that in Britain, gambling was never a moneymaker for organized crime like you were talking about earlier. And it was yeah. never associated with like violence. Britain also never had the equivalent of the Black Sox scandals or a figure like Pete Rose. And sort of funnily, the same year, 1961, when the U.S. crackdown on sports gambling began, that was the same year that Parliament in Britain uh, decided to legalize sports gambling. And we can see how both of those countries have done since then. Um, so they really took those in completely <laughs> different directions. Right, exactly. So Britain, you know, the, the motherland, uh, doing a lot better on the sports gambling front. Well, I mean, the thing is that while Britain has sort of accepted this and allowed it to be a thing, like there's no denying that there's a ton of illegal sports gambling happening in the U.S. But I mean, just how much are we really talking about? There's nearly $4 billion bet on sports legally in Las Vegas every year. <laughs> on top of that, there's an estimated $95 billion expected to be bet on the NFL and college football this season, mostly through offshore online betting houses, office pools, neighborhood bookmakers, <laughs> all illegal means. So compare the $4 billion in Vegas to the $95 million that's going, like, unreported underground. Yeah. Um, Neighborhood boogies. <laughs> it's crazy. And research is showing that if the U.S. had a legal sports betting market, it would be the largest in the world and could potentially gener generate as much annual revenue as the NFL itself at wow. about $12 billion. Wow. So proponents of allowing sports betting argue that because it already goes on illegally, if you legitimized it, it would bring sports gambling out into the light, eliminate corruption, it would bring in extra revenue for states whose budgets are, you know, particularly cash strapped these days. Right. Um, and I mean, what struck me, this is kind of a side note, but what <laughs> struck me while I was reading through all these articles and talking about the economic arguments is that like, this is literally the same argument that people have for the legalization of weed. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it has the same arguments that you can, if it's legal, you can tax it. States gain revenue. You'll have structures in place to prop properly regulate it. How much would it take to actually monitor sports gambling if it were to be made legal? I mean, I, I think the only way to actually effectively police game fixing is to monitor sports betting markets for like, unusual activity, but we currently don't have systems to do that. In 2007, the NBA discovered that an official named Tim Donaghy had bet on games that he officiated, Oof. and he'd provided insider information to gamblers. The commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, said that you know, that was like a wake up call to the league that you can't be complacent. But now Commissioner Adam Silver looking back on the scandal, 
said that no, there were no systems in place that could have captured the betting by right. this official. But wasn't there an example with the Arizona college basketball team uh, in Nevada? Yes, there was. So this was like, I think, I mean, this was discovered because it was so crazily blatant. <laughs> um, but in 1994, some Vegas bookmakers noticed that more than more than a million dollars was pouring into this Arizona college basketball game when usually the game wouldn't have topped $50,000. So (laughs) officials looked into it and they uncovered this like really intense point shaving scandal Uh in which like players, a campus bookie and gamblers from Chicago were all conspiring to fix this game. Yeah. So, I mean, Right now, I guess I guess the structures that are in place are really only going to capture the most blatant and out of control fixes. But if anyone has any subtlety, it seems like they can get away with it at this point. I just think that this whole argument about how easy it is to cheat, how how easy it would be to beat the odds, we don't have a structure in place, so therefore we need to keep it illegal. I think that all of those sorts of moral-based arguments really fall apart when you consider that there are tons of other types of legal gambling that happen every day, um, starting with just state lotteries. That's a type of gambling, and it's completely regulated by the state. Um, But also, you know, there are casinos, not only in Vegas and a handful of other states, but also on Native American reservations. But also there's horse and dog racing. Mm -hmm. And it's just an example of how the government already allows these types of enterprises and regulates these other types of gambling. And so this morality argument about, oh, well, if we allow it, then there will be so much cheating. It just seems a little empty. Um, Yeah. But... I mean, we've gone over some of the reasons why the NFL is opposed to sports gambling, but there's this one excerpt that I want to read, which I think really perfectly sums up the NFL's position and why they remain so staunchly opposed to it, Um, even as the other leagues obviously see more open legalization. And the NBA, of course, Adam Silver penned that editorial in the New York Times just fully coming out for it. Um, so anyway, Ryan M. Rodenberg, he's, yeah. he's writing for Vice, and he says of the NFL, why is the league digging in? Simple. The status quo is incredibly lucrative for the NFL and its team owners. The league is first among non-equals, first in revenues, first in television ratings, first in team valuations, first in the underlying value of its broadcast agreements. The NFL's incentive to deviate from a long-held policy position developed over the course of decades is relatively slight. By continuing to publicly decree sports gambling, all while privately reaping its consumption benefits, the league can have it both ways and steer clear from doing anything potentially risky. All the better to let another sports league stumble along the learning curve and then avoid their missteps years later when there is greater certainty on how to directly monetize sports betting. So, I mean, I don't know how many ways I can condemn Roger Goodell, but (laughs) I will continue to go after him on every single issue because I just do not think that he has the interests of anyone else except for himself in mind. And it's excruciating. Well, I think that this is a really interesting point to now shift the conversation to fantasy sports because... This is an area where the NFL has actually, in the beginning, been pretty hands-off and 
once the system developed and they realized the potential earnings related to fantasy sports, they've really embraced the fantasy league model. I mean, I guess when we talk about fantasy, um, it's kind of the ultimate exception to the illegality of sports gambling. So there's this law called the Unlawful Internet Gambling and Enforcement Act of 2006. Um, And this lays out the legal guidelines for online gambling. And it carves out a safe haven for any fantasy or simulation sports game, essentially saying that they're considered games of skill and not chance so that they can be won by successfully utilizing superior knowledge of the players involved. And it also stipulates that um, the games can't have a prize that's determined by the number of players or amounts paid. So if you think about betting odds on game picks yeah exactly um but rather the prize has to be established in advance of the start of the game so by calling fantasy sports games of skill this makes them legal (laughs) so that's why people aren't getting arrested for playing fantasy football time and time again right so and one of the reasons why the sports leagues so far have been really on board with fantasy sports is because playing fantasy encourages viewership So there was a study commissioned by the NFL in 2002, which found that the average male fantasy player watched 8.4 hours of football a week. And this compares with 6.6 hours for just the average male football fan. So you're getting essentially an extra two hours of viewership. And that's also back in 2002. So the popularity today, I would assume that there's even more viewership than back then. That makes total sense. Because now you're thinking about you're not just watching the games of your team or what's going to be the best matchup each week. Now you have a game of players from all different teams. So you're more inclined to watch these random poor games against two terrible teams because you have some stake in the game. Right, exactly. And that's also not just like armchair philosophy or anything. It's actually been proven by this 2011 study by Fordham professor John Fortunato. And he found exactly what you just said, that games that feature more fantasy-relevant players tend to get higher TV ratings regardless of whether the team is winning or not. And fantasy also makes people stay tuned for otherwise really meaningless um, final minutes of blowouts, and it gets them to watch really boring matchups between terrible teams. And... I mean, just think of NFL Red Zone, which is a television channel that's basically wholly dedicated to this premise, and it just flips you from highlight to highlight of the game. Obviously, this is really lucrative. There are 30 million people in the U.S. who play fantasy sports, and they spend an estimated $11 billion. This money isn't going directly to the NFL, but it's instead going to them indirectly through ad revenues, through greater viewership, and also that the NFL has kind of its own fantasy arm on NFL.com where you can keep track of players and stats and all this other stuff. So they have completely embraced fantasy. I mean, and the fantasy, fantasy football is not just like one site anymore. It's there are podcasts that you can listen to, to like update you on good fantasy picks. There are TV shows. There are like all of these different mediums popping up that are all solely dedicated to fantasy football. So it's becoming its own industry, basically. And included in that are these so-called daily leagues that are popping up. 
Um, and these are really interesting because they kind of blur the lines between gambling and fantasy football. So in a daily league, you draft a new team every day or in the NFL's case every week. So sites that run these leagues are, you may have heard of FanDuel or DraftKings, and they take entry fees and they pay out cash prizes. They're valued at like nearly a billion and 1.5 billion they're just these massive massive companies what's interesting about these daily leagues are that they seem to go against the law that we talked about earlier the unlawful internet gambling and enforcement act because the results can be determined by an athlete's performance in a single game so the results are from a much smaller number of games and this increases the influence of chance it's less of a game of strategy for the person betting it's much more of like a crapshoot of if they perform well or if they don't yeah so i think daily leagues are maybe the final nail in the coffin of what a lot of commentators see as the tides turning toward sports betting being legalized mostly on the back of the popularity and the success and the regulation of fantasy sports So, um, okay, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing the ins and outs of actually playing fantasy football, and not just how it relates to gambling writ large. All right, welcome back. So here at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show, we thought we could give a little primer for the ladies out there who are maybe playing fantasy football for their first time on how fantasy football works, what's the general strategy behind it, and how to go about putting together a good team and sustaining some wins throughout your season. So Maeve, I know you play fantasy football um can you give us a little bit of a primer on how it works what the general strategy is how you made your team and how your season is looking yeah so i am playing fantasy football for the first time ever i am in a really awesome league it's only ladies there are 12 teams so for a little bit of background uh just to get the general gist In fantasy sports, and we'll be talking about football in this episode, um, you draft a team of players from throughout the league, and points are assigned based on their real play. So, for example, in my league, your quarterback earns you one point for every 25 yards that they throw, or you get six points when they throw a touchdown. Um, Or another example is a running back. They'll earn you one point for every 10 yards they rush, and six points if they rush for a touchdown. Um, So similarly, points are assigned for receiving, kicking, defensive plays, interceptions, etc. And every week you go head-to-head with another player in your league, and the team with the most points wins. So we're recording this on Sunday, so tonight will be a very big night to see how my team is doing. Um, We did our draft about two weeks ago, and the draft took a good amount of prep. I mean, you think that you can just go in with a list of rankings and be set, but it's like way more complicated than that. And you have to decide kind of which like fantasy philosophy you want to you want to go with and adjust your strategy depending on which pick you have. So picking first is a lot different from picking last and it's a lot different from picking somewhere in the middle. So day of the draft, I had the 10th pick. 
out of 12. So that really meant two things to me. First, I would have two relatively quick picks in a row because the order reverses. So you pick one through 12 and then it flips and you pick 12 through one. So that was good. But it also meant that there would be a lot of picks in between mine. So I wasn't really in a position to make unorthodox picks. So um, what this means is that fantasy is really driven by rushing and receiving points. So it's really common um, to pick running backs and wide receivers first. But there are some players who really transcend their position, like Rob Gronkowski of the Patriots. He's a tight end. And that's a position that normally wouldn't earn you too many points, but because of how the Patriots organize their offense and what a dominant player he is, he's a really good choice to break from the norm. But I didn't have a good enough pick to do things yeah, like I that. Yeah, I think he scored three of the four Patriots touchdowns right. on Saturday. So my basic philosophy was to really load up on running backs and wide receivers and save really every other position for the later rounds Because if I can't get the best quarterback or the best tight end or whatever, then it's really more valuable to me to have a deeper bench of running backs and wide receivers than to have these like waste picks on otherwise mediocre fantasy players. So I've heard of this thing called auto draft. Can you explain (laughs) that to me? Yeah. So auto draft is when you let the computer select for you and it will select players based on their ranking. But that can lead to things where, like, if the number one kicker is available in the fourth round, then your auto draft might make you pick a kicker over, like, you know, the 32nd ranked wide receiver. And that might sound good, but it's not because your kicker gets you so few points that even a lower ranked wide receiver would get you more. But my one fatal mistake was that I picked Jordy Nelson in the third round And this was fatal because Jordy Nelson will not be playing this season. He is injured. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So otherwise, my team looks pretty good. And I'm hoping that some of the sleepers I chose. So these are players who don't necessarily look the best in mathematical projections. But commentators are thinking that they'll have a really breakout season and like beat the odds, essentially. So I'm hoping that some of those players that I have will really pay off. And... Otherwise, you know, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to be really vigilant, and I hope that I'll just win this league by attrition, by just being the most dedicated and the most focused. (laughs) I feel like hosting a sports podcast should give you the edge. I hope so. Otherwise, like, that'll be embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. I'll keep you updated throughout the season on how my fantasy team's doing and whether all this stuff that they say about increasing viewership and things is actually true and whether I watch more football this season. Uh, shout out to the other ladies in my league. And uh, by this time, when this podcast launches, we'll know if I have won this week or if really good friend of the show, Allison, has taken me down. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I can't wait to get your updates. <laughs> All right. I think that about does it. Um, where can they find us online, Bryn? Well, everyone, you can find us online on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show on Facebook. We're on Twitter and Instagram at NYBF Sports. Our email address is nybfsports at gmail.com. And hopefully one day we're going to have a website. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it's <today>. coming. <laughs> um, and you should right. also sign up for our mailing list. 
you can find the link on our Facebook and on our Twitter. Yeah, and we'll send out on our off weeks between episodes, we'll be sending out a list of article articles we're reading that may or may not have made the episode. So if you want to keep up with us and what we're reading, sign up for our mailing list. Perfect. All right. Well, good game, Bryn. Good game, Maeve.